All right, welcome back, everyone, to Couch to Couch, Making Therapy Make Sense with Chuck LeBlanc. Today, we have a special guest, Michelle Bodoshen. She is uh, one of our therapists here at the KSRC, the Campbell Stress Relief Center, where I work out of as well. Uh, Michelle has been interested in psychology from a young age. She spent a significant amount of time observing behavior and making connections between events, emotions, and the behaviors that would ensue. She found that being a third-party observer allowed her to heal misunderstandings and prevent rifts. Michelle's recently joined the Kempville Stress Relief Center team, having worked in an alternative school and family support center for years. Michelle has noticed that several cultural factors play a role in how conflicts arise, and she tries to integrate this knowledge into her practice. A lot of the work she does revolves around emotions, behaviors, and interpersonal relationships. She uses empathy to validate others' experience and feelings, combined with psychoeducation to help others create constructive responses to achieve the goals they hold for themselves. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you, Chuck. You're welcome. I kind of I feel like I sound like a radio announcer today. I don't know. I was at a, a baby shower yesterday, and I talked way too much, so my voice is a lot lower and a bit hoarse today. But we'll 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 muddle through. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole different dynamic. Um, so yeah, so that was your bio. I know that's how, how we wanted to introduce you. And what I'd like to do now is to just take a minute and help get you to plug up any holes that I might have missed with the bio and also help people find you if you have um, email addresses, websites, all that good stuff. Awesome. Yeah, for the holes that are missing, I'd say uh, the story is pretty much there. I'm sure we'll get into more details as we go along. Uh, if anyone's looking to find me, I am at the Campbell Stress Relief Center. So you can go to www.ksrc.ca. And my email is specifically michelle at ksrc.ca. Awesome. All right. So what I wanted to launch into, I think I'm going to do something uh, for the first time on my my show, which is to talk about your therapist origin story. Uh, and so what, what I'm curious about is what led you to become a counselor? What's the story there? And... and what do you think about the role so far? Okay, it's a big question. Um, let's start from the beginning. <laughs> okay, so as a young child, like grade two, I watched a lot of Dr. Phil. Um, so I did a lot of people watching, especially at school. I was a bit of a loner. Uh, so at recess, instead of playing with other kids, I would watch them. And I would observe what was going on and I'd hear the little arguments that they were having over misunderstandings like, oh, this one took my toy. But I knew who had taken the toy. It wasn't that one or they had displaced it or whatever. Mm. And so I'd watch and I found it really interesting. And then I'd go up a few minutes later, of course, after noticing the drama a bit. <laughs> and I'd offer the solution. I'd let them know what I had seen. And Oh, we're OK. Well, we're friends again. So you know how eight year olds are. Yeah. Um, as I got older, uh, that skill just kept developing. I still loved people watching. I used to go to the mall and people watch a lot as a teenager. It was just fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I finally took a psychology course in grade 11, which I aced and I learned a lot more about the actual theories and sociology. I never heard of sociology before and culture and how people are formed and that really sparked my interest. I wanted to know more. So um, in my grade 12 year, I had finished school. Didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I had not considered university or anything like that. That wasn't really a thing for my family. We 
no one had gone to university or college before. I didn't expect that to be my path. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just kind of hit me that I wanted to be a psychologist. So I looked into it, called a lot of schools. Uh, I found one that fit my needs at the time in terms of wanting to do online learning and be able to work at the same time because I had to do that. Um, And then I I got more into psychology uh, two years down the road. I realized what I actually want to do is counseling Mm. because for psychology, there's a lot of assessments, um, meeting people maybe a couple of times. It's not so frequent. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted that frequent aspect of working together with someone over a period of time. So funny enough, I took a counseling course and I did not do well because (laughs) a lot of the assignments wanted that personal connection, but I had been in the psychology course like the whole time. And so I was more of that clinical brain and not so much the personal brain. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a moment where I was really worried about taking that career path, but I decided to stick with it, try it out, took a lot of sociology courses. That gave me an an understanding of culture. Um, And then when I had graduated, uh, I learned that I needed a master's degree if I wanted to to pursue psychotherapy rather than counseling on its own. Uh, Knowing that counseling has so much power and psychotherapy could bring me the other half of the way, that's the route I took. Here I am today. My goals have changed throughout the time. I started off wanting to help families, um, specifically younger children. I worked in a school, worked with children from the ages of 10 to 17, worked in a family sports center, worked with children of all ages from baby all the way up to 18. Um, And I kind of learned over time that more of my niche was to help the parents of children Mm -hmm. because the adults are the role models and these are where the kids are learning things from. So rather than targeting the child, if I could help the adults and the parents, then could benefit society and raising healthy children and healthy families. And that's what I really wanted to do at the core of the entire time. Mm-hmm. That, that would explain your keen interest in interpersonal relationships you mentioned in the bio. Yes, exactly. Yes. Relationships, they nurture us. Um, they teach us what is what, what are the norms, how to behave, how to get what we want. And so why not? why not focus on that? Because we need that in every aspect of our life, whether it be at work, friendships, romantic interests, it's a big part of our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, relationships are everything. I know that since I've started as a therapist, it's largely become relational, like even in the therapy room, right? So a lot of it, you know, my dealing, my niche specifically is with males, uh, or individuals who identify as male. And a lot of the socialization there is, you know, issues surrounding emotions and vulnerability. And it's something that's difficult to teach unless you're being vulnerable and open. So a lot of that conversation is about the relationship in the room between the counselor and the therapist. And I know that from a Rogerian perspective, that is what counseling is. is. Carl Rogers is all about the relationship in the room, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that relationship tells us a lot about what's going on in a person's head, what's going on in the relationships outside of the therapy room, Mm -hmm. because we don't tend to change depending on who we're talking to. There's things within us that stay stagnant in our personality and they're, they're visible wherever we are. Mm -hmm. So it's lovely that we have that opportunity to work with someone personally and actually get to know them so that we can see how 
the relational understanding and functioning is. Mm. Yeah, it's courageous for someone to walk in the room with us in the first place. You know, it's hard enough to make that yes. phone call. Yes. Um, but it takes a significant amount of courage to actually walk in, which is always where the counselor has a lot of respect for the people who are in front of them. Mm -hmm. If yeah. you don't have a lot of respect for your clients, then you shouldn't be a counselor. That's for sure. Yeah. Straight, straight hard facts from Chuck LeBlanc. Um, <laughs> so when it comes to your, uh, psychological influences, you know, I mentioned Carl Rogers is a big one of mine mm -hmm. and I have a few others, but where, where do your influences come from? Good question. Um, there's a lot of different people that I think have piqued different parts of my interest over the years. The ones that stand out looking back at it all, uh, were Sigmund Freud. Uh, Sue Johnson, Fritz Perls, and Carl Rogers. Mm. Uh, in particular, for each one, they offered something that really stuck with me. And for whatever reason, that's that's why I remember them. And, I, and, and I've taken their concepts and I integrated them into the way that I speak with people and the way that I function in life. To get more specific, uh, Sigmund Freud, he had a lot of child development ideas which I thought were pretty interesting. He also had a lot of ideas that weren't so successful in the long term that people had thought were, were good ideas over time. And so that kind of sticks with me to remember that, you know, sometimes we think that a theory is really good and we have to be current on our understanding because over time we might find that it's not good and maybe we should be doing things a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Freud's an interesting one because he brought a lot to the table. I mean, he opened the doors wide open he did. with his theory. He brought us... Uh, he brought us in the Western world a more concrete version of what an unconscious would look like through, you know, the death drive and the life drive and and the pull of repression that we get, right? The reasons we do the things we do is from a repressive stance, right? Which I find fascinating about him. And then there was ways where he kind of went out in left field, yep. which get made fun of a lot, right? Sometimes a cigar is a cigar is a big joke that we hear all the time. Yep. But it's neat to see why he ended up there, why, how that worked, right? And it was from, I mean, he came out of a capitalist society, so he's obsessed with the Oedipal complex, right? Which breeds productive workers. That's the idea behind it. And so for, for Freud, when he became a psychologist, when he was guiding his patients, he was trying to guide them to become productive members in a capitalistic society, which is only like 25% of the human experience in our world. Yeah. But he was really good at that 25%. Yeah. He had some strengths and some weaknesses and it's a good learning experience. That's for sure. Um, especially with the issues around female anatomy and the wandering yeah. uterus and that's causing hysteria. That's obviously not something that people go with now. <laughs> we know that that's yeah. not correct, but it's really neat just to see the development and how one, one theory that we can we can see as so strong and so leading can over time be understood as not no longer culturally relevant or mm -hmm. realistic anymore. Yeah, that's right. It just had its ripple effects yeah. with the rest of them. And so you also mentioned Fritz Perls. I'm really interested in yeah. Fritz Perls. Um, so tell me more about the influence of, of Fritz Perls. He yeah. was a dynamic therapist. Yes, he was very neat. He was uh, pretty bold. If you look on his videos on YouTube, he was very bold coming across to people. Uh, his main thing was calling out 
human behavior, like just the way that someone was sitting or the words that they kept using as excuses is what he called them. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is Gestalt therapy, right? It was Gestalt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the creator behind it was more his wife. Mm. Um, but because of the times he was the one to take it forward and really push it out there to the public. Mm. Um, but yeah, I love to use that part of Gestalt therapy where you can notice someone's physical structure or the way that they're holding themselves. And you might point it out, not so confrontationally as he did it, of course. Uh, that's mm-hmm. just not the way that I am. I'm a lot more nurturing and supportive than that. Um, but to just notice it, uh, you know, sometimes when people, I've had people talk about not getting along with their mom. And as they're telling me about the last time they spoke to their mom, their body is like getting hunched in and they're like mm-hmm. literally holding themselves. And so after they've been speaking, I might say, do you notice the way that you're curled in on yourself right now? You look like you're kind of scared. You're protecting yourself. Oh, I didn't notice. And they might like straighten out after that. Mm-hmm. But it's really neat. I do like that. It tells a story that maybe even the person's not aware their body is telling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the body has its own language in a, in a way. I, I remember years ago, I was at a, in training in Toronto for something completely different. But I just happened to be, it was the sec- first year of my master's of counseling, and I just happened to be in the same hotel that a gestalt conference was going on. So there's a gestalt therapist from all over the world there. And so I crashed a gestalt conference, which was hilarious. So I snuck my way in. Uh, and I got to meet like all these people talking about it because I'd never heard of it. I was like, what the hell is this, right? And so I was talking with one gentleman, but I was very nervous about meeting new people because of the social anxiety. So I was sitting there talking to him while I was flipping a book back and forth in my hand. And within five minutes of the conversation, he called me out on it. And I didn't like that because I was like, what the, f- <laughs> like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, but we had a pretty in-depth conversation about body language there, which really brought, that was the first time in my journey where the body was brought to my attention. And that was the kernel which led me to a lot of the pieces that I use today. That's really cool. So you crashed your convention, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's my thing. Go on. <laughs> I, I find thing. myself in very strange places sometimes. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. yeah, I do. I do like the body aspect. I've learned, um, like people have a sense of tuition, intuition about things. They'll say, you know, I, I don't trust that person. Like, well, why? You don't know them. There's just mm-hmm. something about them. And they're probably looking at their body language, probably an aggressive look to them. Um, and we don't tend to take these things seriously because for well, you don't even know the person. Come on, it doesn't count. But intuition does count because mm-hmm. it's based on our experiences, what we're observing and what keeps us safe or what makes us want to approach people. Mm-hmm. And that's a lovely thing that we're able to draw on that because for those who might have had poor experiences in the past with a certain look, they might know why they're not getting along with certain people. Mm-hmm. It's because they have that same look and that's okay. Now you understand and you can take those pieces and you can do what you like with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Different body language, like words have different symbolisms depending on your experience. Mm-hmm. And so you also mentioned Sue Johnson. So Sue Johnson's one that comes up frequently. Uh, well, Sue Johnson and Les Greenberg. So they both had their own takes on emotion focused therapy. Uh, two very different takes with the same name, which I haven't quite figured out how that works. So that's not where we're going today because I don't know why. Couldn't uh, tell you. Yeah, I, couldn't, I have no idea. But 
it comes up a lot. So when you when it comes to Sue Johnson, how is the influence on on you? Yeah, Sue Johnson was, in my opinion, the first person that I had read about that was actually really nurturing towards people. Mm. And she took seriously that empathetic, nurturing response to humanity in her work. Uh, a lot of the theories, a lot of the people I'd read about were very clinical minded, and they would incorporate a bit of humanity into that. But she was the first person that I noticed that was basically saying, like, what people need is to be loved, cared for, to feel safe, and they'll grow. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love that because I do believe that that is the case for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. They're not in environments that are conducive to their growth. They have work that demands that they spend every last minute there. They have conflicts with people over what knows and that the world can be a dangerous place sometimes. And it's just knowing that, you know, that love and that care and the empathy and just nurturing somebody is the most important medicine to growth. That really stood out to me. Yeah. And it speaks a lot to the, I know that her main theories are surrounding attachment styles, which is a lot about how we receive and give love. How does this, you know, how do we engage with relationships themselves, whether romantic or otherwise? Yeah. So tell me more about the attachment style side of things. Yeah, the attachment style thing um, is interesting because I feel like a lot of misunderstandings happen over mixed attachment styles. People mm -hmm. not understanding uh, why someone would do this when I would prefer them to do this. Mm -hmm. Well, because that's not the way they, they were raised to show their love or to keep themselves safe. Uh, I've had, I've luckily had quite a bit of knowledge around this stuff and so I've been able to build a lot of relationships with different people uh, some that have been described as difficult because they have that disorganized attachment style where they push and pull at the same time mm -hmm. um, so one minute they are totally fine to have me around them to talking about personal things and then something changes and they don't want me around and that's okay um, and so I can take those cues and I can push back um, sometimes people don't understand what's going on and so they keep pushing because something that was fine before should be fine again, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And I like that. Um, we have all different types of attachment styles. And so understanding how we attach to others and how they are responding to that is again, kind of that intuition as to when to push and when to pull back and mm -hmm. how to nurture a relationship without overwatering the grass. Yeah, that makes sense. A disorganized attachment style is one of the most, for me, interesting to work with. It's the most difficult, but it's also the most interesting. Because the therapist, you have to be on your toes, right? Because you, you know, your your job is safety, while helping someone navigate whatever complex situations are going on. So you have to be with disorganized attachment styles. You have to be on your toes more than most things that are going on because you don't want to overstep, right? Yeah. People put up boundaries for a reason. And they need to be respected. And so this, this, I always feel like I'm in a dance when I'm with, <laughs> dealing with people like that. It is kind of a dance. Yeah, a dance of respect and boundaries and knowing where they lie. And it's really kind that somebody is willing to actually let us in on that. And, mm -hmm. and rather than just, you know, shutting us out and saying, nope, you've overstepped once, I'm done with you. I really appreciate it when the client can, can forgive and communicate and and try again be vulnerable with me again mm -hmm. um in trying because that's how relationships go 
people overstep, they pull back. It's, it is that dance with any relationship you have. Yeah, it's because you're getting to know each other's rhythm. Yeah. And rhythm is largely, I mean, a lot of this is largely emotional. It's feelings-based. That's the intuition, right? And your emotions are feedback systems that we use to navigate the world around us and that the world uses to navigate us. So we can change our environment through emotions and then the environment changes us with those emotions. That's just how we understand it. But it all comes through just to bring in your concepts that you were talking about before with Fritz Perls. It all comes through the body first. The, the body is the feelers. So we see it, right? So that, you know, the chest gets tight or we kind of pull back or, you know, we open up. Just the body is doing the thing before the brain ever catches up. Yeah. And so the body does has the reaction, then we have the emotion, then we start to digest that and the thoughts start taking place. So your prefrontal cortex begins to engage. But if you're divorced from any of those processes, like when you're dealing with men, a lot of them are divorced from a lot of the particular emotions, like grief, sadness, hurt, and it just gets uh, redirected into anger and frustration, which is our boundary emotions, right? Because that's what we're taught. Then you always miss the steps in that dance because you don't have all the information. You're too busy protecting yourself from it. Yeah. And so, but that is always going to come down to your attachment styles and the different ways your body's using to redirect those emotions in some direction. So I can see how Fritz Perls would be helpful in, in, or gestalt therapy would be helpful in calling those things out so you know exactly what you're doing. Yeah. And then emotion-focused therapy is really good so you know why you're doing it and how it works. Yeah, even communicating through our own bodies as therapists is serving a population in a different way. We're letting clients know that we are safe. We are. If you want a distance, we will keep a distance. If it makes you feel more comfortable with me closer, I'll move closer. Um, if I'm hunched over, like that doesn't, that doesn't, it does not conducive to, to therapy. You know, that open stance, it, it mirrors calmness and trust. Uh, and I think those are really important for us to have with our clients because we're the professionals and they're coming in and they're not going to trust us right away. Why would they? They don't know us. We're strangers. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe on their experiences, it's smart not to trust people. And that's okay. So for us to, to model that and to let people know that we are safe or we're at least okay to be in the same room with, we're not going to hurt you. It's okay. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important and it shows respect for their boundaries, which mm -hmm. sometimes are not always respected. That's right. That's right. And it shows a lot of how much control they do have, right? Because the power dynamics that are at play in a therapy room uh, are very distinct coming in, right? Because you mentioned the word professionals, right? Yeah. And so people are looking for help. So they think we have the answers, right? Mm -hmm. But then it's also for like an authoritative stance, which isn't the role of a therapist. The, ther the therapist isn't some authority. Uh, we're a navigator, you know, you're yeah. driving the car and we sit beside you with a map and we try to figure out what's happening. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's a very different role than like if you see a doctor or yeah. like a mechanic or something, it's not an authoritarian figure, but it feels that way. The body reacts that way. So the therapist's job is to make sure the client knows, okay, for the next 50 minutes, this is your space. Yeah. Let's navigate it the way you want, you know? So yeah. we, mold ourselves to the situation to find a way to make it as open as possible mm -hmm. so that they can come to us if they want to, you know, and you have, I'm not sure if you've experienced this yet, but sometimes you have sessions where all we talk about is like sports, 
you know, t- what we saw on TV, you know, or uh, comic books or video games. These are com- some conversations that show up, and it's not really about what they came in for, but it's a safe space where their body gets to feel it out. So the training and the therapy takes place just based on the interaction itself, so that attachment piece, rather than the words that are coming out of the mouth. Yeah, there's no expectations on our end for what we're going to do. We're just planning to be here for you, and that's it. So there's no agenda. We're not going to diagnose what's wrong. We don't do that anyway. Mm -hmm. I feel like some people come in and they're like, oh, I think I have an issue. Can you diagnose me? No, I can't. (laughs) I'm here to support you. (laughs) That's right. Psychotherapy is a different... It's a whole different ball of wax and I think it's uh, I mean I have kind of a similar origin story in the sense of trajectory where I was, mm-hmm. I was always aiming for psychotherapy uh, because I like well Carl Rogers which is where we're going next Carl Rogers is like the godfather of psychotherapy who really he understood the human of humans mm-hmm. I'm just being there with someone as we walk through these very difficult or complex problematics that they're trying to deal with yeah yeah. So how did Carl, Carl Rogers influence you? For him, um, it was really neat. So throughout school, Carl Rogers was often cited as follow what his teachings are. He knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at first it was hard because I was like, what's he really doing? <laughs> um, all the other ones, they had all these tricks up their sleeves, like what to do. But he was so basic in that he just wanted to sit with someone and reflect back to them what they were telling him Mm. um, and just feel with them, give them that private space to be themselves and feel what they're feeling. And to me, I was like, well, that, that seems so easy. (laughs) It seems so easy. Um, But it's not that easy because, you know, as people we're thinking, we always have things going on in our head. So it does take skill to actually calm down and to really understand what's going on. Because sometimes our words don't match our emotions. Mm -hmm. And so we might be telling a story about, let's say our dog dying and we're just, yes, my dog passed away back in 2015 and it's been hard since then. Oh, I can, you know, what am I feeling under the surface? What are the emotions there? Are there emotions? Um, Mm -hmm. Like, let's talk about it. Rather than the story that you've told, probably everyone who's asked you, where's your dog? Uh, this space is for you. So if you're interested, why don't we talk about it? Yeah, he had this neat way. I mean, he was the master of listening. That was his thing, right? Yeah. And what I like about Rogers is that his complexity was in his theory. So how he understood to listen. So when you're when you're learning about Rogers, when you're doing your research and you're understanding the theory itself, um, which is called for the listeners the necessary and sufficient conditions for their psychotherapy. It's extremely complicated. It is. But he was one of those people that lived it. So when he sat there, you know, you watch some of his videos and it looks like he's just sitting there yep. and not doing anything. But when you read what's happening and you watch the transformation that takes place on the level of the client when you're watching what's happening, what he's doing is he's setting the ground rules for being able to hear the client on three very specific levels. One is the, the themes of what the client is bringing to the table. Like you mentioned the dog dying. So my dog died in 2015. That's a theme. So he would give you a thematic summary, you know, so it sounds like you had a difficult time in 2015 because your dog passed away. Simple, just reflecting what the client literally said, 
right? But then the next thing he does is a feeling summary. And the feeling summary usually shocks people because he says, you know, when somebody says something like that, as therapists, we know they're rhyming it off, right? Just like reading a newspaper article. And when people do that, typically they're like, fuck, I got to get this out. I'm not going to feel it, yeah. right? But if you're listening, you'll feel it. So then you'll start to feel something as a therapist, grief, maybe you'll get sad. And then he says it. it sounds like you're grieving. You've been grieving since 2015. And that usually like shocks people at first because they're like, oh, wait a minute. I've been heard, right? And then after a while talking, the meaning summary shows up. And this is the meaning summary is where I find therapist therapy to be the most powerful. Because then you're noticing, wait, he, this individual just rhymed off that the dog died, really didn't want to feel this emotions, is grieving. And then he would say something like, it sounds like you don't have a lot of places where people accept that you're grieving. And that starts the game. I, I remember this one video, I'm not sure if you've seen it, of him talking to a gentleman about anger. And all he did was the reflections that I just talked about while the guy was struggling with even saying that he was angry until eventually the gentleman talked about, like he said, I'm, he said, I'm feeling like there's uh or Roger said to him, I'm feeling like there's an abyss growing, uh, expanding right in front of us and you're dancing around the circle and every once in a while you want to dip your toe into it, but I'm not quite sure what that abyss represents to you. And then the gentleman started crying and said, it's anger. I'm trying not to be angry, but I really want to be angry. He keeps dipping his toes. And it's neat to watch him because then he starts pleading with the therapist, like, tell me what to do. Tell me what I'm feeling. And then Rogers is just like, it sounds like you really want me to tell you what you're feeling. That's it. And then you watch as the gentleman struggles with coming to terms with that abyss until they both jump in together. And then they both get angry about the situation and they both accept the fact that they're angry about the situation. It's such a beautiful thing to watch. And that's... That's Rogers in a nutshell, right? That's what a psychotherapist does is we go in mm -hmm. with you, not above, but we're jumping in with you. So if you're telling me about your dog, I'm crying alongside of you because I have a dog. I'm right. I live a human life. Yeah. You're not yeah. alone. That human aspect. Yeah. He really brought that to the table. And I feel like a lot of people that are coming out of my school anyway, um, that was what we were taught first was mm -hmm. Rogers person-centered theory uh, and how to incorporate that with other things that have come along since mm -hmm. um, but again that core basic human instinct and human attachment right there between the therapist and the client is the most important thing we can have in therapy because we're working together and one thing I've noticed a lot is that if you read a bio for a therapist or a counselor the words that they use are not you know, to, to figure out what's going on or, you know, to lead, they're usually guide or support or assist. Mm. But it kind of highlights the role of the therapist there is we're here to help you if you mm. want it, to, to attend to that journey with you if you want it. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And it really speaks to the words that we use to name ourselves, right? A psychotherapist and psycho just means soul. Right? It means psyche from, from Greek. So we're like, we're a therapist of the soul, which is, um, what's the word used? A companion of the soul is what those root words mean. And so the idea is that we walk alongside. It's very different from like a medical model where you're a doctor, 
It's like very clinical, which has its place. But, you know, a psychotherapist is not a mechanic of the soul, right? We're a companion. So we walk alongside, which is a lot of, for me, it's the most powerful reason to be in the profession. It is, yeah. To witness human experiences, live them with people, and just know that their feelings and their experiences do matter. Mm-hmm. So they can open themselves up to pursuing the life they're looking to lead and get past the whatever barriers are presented with whatever complications have shown up from their current skill set, mm-hmm. which is neat. So, okay, so we've talked about the influences, we've talked about your origin story. It's a lot like I'm talking to a superhero. That's pretty cool. You can tell I'm a comic guy. Anyway. Um, and so now that you're a therapist and you're engaged in, in the work, and you've been working, I mean, you've been working with kids for a long time. Yeah. So this is definitely not a new rodeo for you. Mm-hmm. When it comes to what you engage with now at the KSRC, what are some of your, it's, it's an odd thing to put this, but favorite things to work with? And, and how do you work with them? So start with like, what are, what are the things that like your niche? What is it that you work with? Hey, um, so, oh, that's such a good question. Okay. So the two things that get me so excited are anger and first responders. Those are the, the two things that when I hear about them, I just get so excited. So I'm like, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I also do a lot with anxiety. Anxiety can look like so many different things though, right? right. Um, and so I feel like there's a personal connection there for myself with anxiety as I suffered from a lot of social anxiety growing up, very similar to you, Chuck. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another thing that gets me excited uh, more in the way of, oh, I really want to help this person. Whereas anger and first responders gets me all excited. Like, oh yeah, this is going to be a challenge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are the main three. Yeah. It's a tough one. So when you're working with, uh, wow, there's, there's three big ones. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Well, let's go with anger and anxiety first. Then we'll go okay. to a first response. So when you're working with uh, anxiety and anger, how do you work with that? Yes. So anxiety and anger are both very interesting to work with because it's like that dance in process where the boundaries aren't always so clear and they can change moment by moment. Mm. That excites me a lot because as I go through meeting people and getting to know them, I learn those boundaries. Um, And then I can kind of build a map in my mind and I can build that map with them, with what they're okay with and what they're not okay with, uh, which helps in their relationships as well, right? If they're building one with me, they can translate that to other people. so for anxiety, um, there's I've seen so many different types of anxiety where people are really, really shy and quiet because they're anxious. Um, and I've also seen people who are really loud and out there because they're anxious. And that's mm-hmm. a way to draw certain attention to themselves rather than right. other attention. Um, so again, the nurturing role is, is really important there. Um, same with anger, the nurturing role it's more of an acceptance of who they are, mm-hmm. um, which kind of helps to knock down the defenses over time. They don't need to protect themselves from me. They'll see that, they'll witness that, just talking to me, getting to know me. I'm not there to hurt, I'm there to help. Um, and that usually can lead us to what the fears are 
that are supporting that anxiety or that anger. Mm. Um, and that can give me a clue as to where to go from there. Like I said, there's not one specific way that I do anything. Mm. Um, I like things from different, different ideas, different theories, different concepts. Um, and again, it's what the client wants. What do they want to work on? What are their goals? Um, and when they're talking, what tools are popping into my head that's helpful for that to get there? Some clients come in and they want cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, okay, so we can we can find different ways to to attach our our thoughts to our emotions and and uh, reframe things, you know, from from negative thinking to more realistic thinking, um, especially for those who are catastrophic. I can't even speak <laughs> who are imagining the worst possible scenario every time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then others that aren't interested in CBT, they might be more interested in assault where we're hearing the different sides of them speak and mm-hmm. what those messages are they're receiving. So I, I like it because it's that dance and I get to learn more about the person. They get to learn more about themselves, which is the most important part. Um, and then we just use whatever tools come to mind that seem to match what they're looking for. That makes sense. And I know with uh, one of the reasons I clumped anxiety and OCD together is one, what did I say? Not OCD, anger. What am I talking anger. about? <laughs> I just gave away where my question's going. So there you go. You can you can process that while I get there. With, with anxiety, it's often fear-based. So it's like security-based. Right, so there's something freaky about or threatening about the world around us. We have to find a way to protect ourselves. Whether we ruminate, uh, form OCD habits, control it, whatever it is, you know, fawn, uh, run, whatever we're doing is is pure safety. And what anger is doing, which I find interesting, is it's a boundary emotion. So it gets ahead of the threat and then sets a boundary. Right? Sorry, anxiety gets ahead of the threat, sets up a fence. People can't cross it. Anger teaches people how to treat you don't do these certain things. This is where I draw the line, that sort of thing. And we can see when people have anger management uh, complications, you know, especially with men, a lot of that is because we're not allowed to be hurt or sad or grieve. And all we can do is be angry. So when we're hurt, we're angry. When we're sad, we're angry. And what we're doing is trying to get people away from us so we don't process this emotion. We don't have to get angry. So we're just like, get out of here. I don't want to talk about it. Blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. Or we seethe. Uh, why does this always happen to me? It's like a black and white response. But when you put them together, what I find interesting about anxiety is anxiety can eventually lead. I mean, there's a few hoops to go through, but it can eventually lead to OCD. And OCD is an incredibly complicated uh, response to the world because it's a feedback loop. And it's a feedback loop based on fear. And so oftentimes you have to unravel the fear and all that pieces but what I have found with fear, especially if you're dealing with someone who's a fawner, someone who is, uh, feels weak, feels like they can't control the world, has been put down most of their life, is there's, all, there's an absence of anger in their emotional spectrum. So they don't know how to get angry or they're uncomfortable. They feel guilty about being angry. So oftentimes what I have to do in an OCD situation is find out what they're angry about or what they could be angry about and then stoke that fire get them angry. And this is kind of going full circle with our conversation with Sue Johnson. This is Les Greenberg's version of uh, emotional focus therapy, where you look for the 
secondary emotions that are triggering a certain response based on their core wounds. And then you look for primary emotions that they actually want to be having. So what's the actual emotion that's going on here that's being masked by a secondary emotion? So in the case of OCD, it's being masked by fear and feeling hopeless. The emotions that cause you to go into these feedback loops to try to take care of something without actually taking care of anything. Mm-hmm. And when you can stoke anger, you can start to get pissed off at the ways, uh, uh, you know, like washing your hands. You can start getting pissed off at washing your hands. And then it creates this like little tiny fissure between the fear response and the m- mechanic maneuver. And then you can start stoking and stoking. And then you actually figure out what am I angry at? Which could be like something in your childhood or something, you know, <laughs> this, that, or the other thing. But I find the use of anger in those contexts can be incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And then the opposite, right? When you, people who are angry and they're having anger management complications, oftentimes you want to bring in a sense of control from the other side. It's like maybe controlling it in a different way is going to work. So it's this neat dance between the two. So have you encountered that or what do you think about that? Uh, for OCD, uh, it is very complex because it's it's something that usually someone has had going on for a while. They've developed a very specific routine mm-hmm. uh, and it's very hard for them to break. To imagine breaking that, it can lead to a lot of symptoms that are really scary for someone like, like a panic attack, really hard time breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thought of going into therapy where someone's going to say, get rid of that. No, that's mm-hmm. not going to happen. That's absolutely terrifying. That is never going to happen. This mm-hmm. routine is helping me. Why would you take away something that is helping me? That's right. So I love the idea of using anger as a tool because anger is a tool. That's exactly what it is. Uh, it can be a tool to keep people out. It can be a tool to protect ourselves. Um, it can be a tool to get what we want. Um, and I think that that's a common misconception about anger is that it's a problem. It's mm-hmm. not a problem. It's a tool. And you decide how you want to use that tool. Whether you think you can decide or not is a totally different thing. Um, but I, I believe in choice. And I believe that we are mm-hmm. choosing these things for a reason. We might not know the reason. We can figure it out, though. Mm-hmm. That's fine. I do love the idea of anger as a tool, though. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of the most important tools we have, you know. Because it's a very specific nervous system response to not liking what's going on and wanting to change it. You know, it puts the keys directly in your hand to change it. And I mean, where it, there's pros and cons to everything. And if you've lived your whole life where anger is the refined tool, so it's the go-to, then that is going to cause complications in interpersonal relationships, maintaining jobs. Like, it's going to cause all of this stuff. But it's not because you're out of control. It's because you don't know any other way to protect yourself in those moments where you feel threatened. Like how the context of these situations are very specific to maybe your childhood, how you grew up and you're, you're unaware that there's other tools and there's other ways to navigate these environments. And so the thing to remember is you're always trying to keep yourself safe. And it's always an amygdala response, which means it's safety in the present moment for this exact situation guided by the context of the past. But the amygdala does not care about long-term consequences. That's not its job, right? I always use the example if like a a salivating bear is running at you, you don't want to sit down and start thinking about your options, (laughs) right? You want to get the hell out of there, right? Or start making loud noises, right? It's it's a very short-term situation that is valid. And so when we deal with anger management, it's about, okay, well, what is it that you're trying to protect yourself from? What is the context? 
uh, is this called for? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's like, no, you don't have an anger management problem. You're in a bad environment. Can we get you out of that environment? And sometimes it's like, well, you only have one tool. Let's try to expand your tool set, expand your context and see how else to navigate this based on what you want out of it. Yeah, I do. I do love that analogy of tools and tool set and toolbox, um, different ways to handle things. Uh, for a lot of anger, I feel like it, from what I've heard, from what I've experienced and witnessed, um, there's often a good reason why people are angry. Uh, there's like social injustice. Mm -hmm. They feel like someone has done something wrong and maybe they have. People do things wrong all the time. They also do things that are right, but uh, they all affect us in different ways. Um, and so I feel like that's where culture kind of comes in and, and it's how we interpret the ways that things are going. Mm -hmm. uh, are we feeling like others are looking down on us or are taking things away from us that we aren't on the same level as others? Uh, because if that's how we're feeling, no wonder we're angry because mm -hmm. we're also disappointed. We're also feeling like there's no justice in the world and it makes sense. And so it is easier to, of course, be angry and just call everyone a jerk and, mm -hmm. or other names. Um, and it's a lot harder to actually delve into the truth of what's going on, how we're feeling. And I feel like a lot of times people feel they can't express what they're really thinking because they're worried about offending someone or saying the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why this having a space for someone in therapy is so important because that space is for you. You're not offending anyone because no one is there to hear it anyway. It's just me mm -hmm. and it's not going to offend me because I want to know what's going on and I want to feel that with you. And I totally understand if you can help me understand where you're mm -hmm. coming from and I will leave that space and I'll keep an open mind so that I can understand it with you. That's right. And that's the number one piece of Rogers necessary and sufficient conditions is non-judgment, non-judgmental atmosphere. Because that's the point. Everyone's different when they're coming in. They're different in how they handle things. They have different upbringings. So if the therapist is starting to judge as they're in the, the chair, then they've already screwed something up because they're inviting shame and guilt into the mix. And there's no place for it, you know, because shame and guilt is designed to guide behaviors towards certain standards. And in therapy, mm -hmm. there is no standard of behavior. That's not the point. We're not here to... And this is where Freud messed up, is we're not here to churn out productive citizens to act a specific way for a specific reason. We're to, here to understand how do you want to live your life? What do you find valuable? And what's getting in the way of you pursuing that? But that's all up to how you want to do it. Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to touch this or that, we'll touch it. And if you don't want to touch it and you just want to talk about sports today, that's what we'll do. And we'll respect your needs and your wants and your space. Exactly. So we have a few more minutes left and I don't, I know you mentioned three and I jumped in on the anger and anxiety thing because uh, I mean, we can engage in conversation. I have a lot of conversations about that, but you did mention <laughs> first responders as well. And I think that's uh, incredibly important, especially in our day and age today where they're unrepresented. It's very difficult to find access to mental health services uh, for people who are first responders, nurses, uh, police officers, firefighters, paramedics, all of these uh, people who are integral to our society. And so I, yeah. I'm interested to hear about that niche for you and how you help them. Yeah, uh, that niche in particular is really important to me because my spouse is a first responder and he has been for six years now. 
a lot of my friends are first responders. So I've witnessed a lot of things that go on within institutions and how it affects the people that work there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a common theme I hear is that their, their work requirements don't always match their heart requirements. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that concept of moral injury there where they're going against their morals and it hurts over time. And I think that as people who are represented as heroes of our society, it's really hard for anyone to imagine them as humans as well. Mm -hmm. So that ideal of having to be a hero makes it really hard to access help Mm -hmm. because heroes don't need help, right? Of course they do need help, but that's not the message that they're getting. Mm -hmm. Um, And that leads to stigma there. There is so much stigma uh, and it's really scary to put oneself out there, especially with the way that the media can turn things around mm-hmm. uh, in the news all the time for people doing their job. It, it, they'll turn it around and then a few bad apples makes the whole bunch look spoiled. Um, and so that's guiding my interest there is I really want to help these people to take that humanity piece back. Mm-hmm. Um, and feel whole again and feel like they are important too. They might be providing care to all of society, but they need to have care for themselves as well. And someone needs to care for them too. And that's why I use the word support when I'm, when I'm writing in my bios about what I do is I support people mm-hmm. because that's what we need. We need someone to lean on, someone to listen and not judge, uh, someone to provide us with tools if we need them, um, to be there for us when we need them. And that's, how I how I am. That's how I've been in roles over the last four years or so. Um, since finishing school, I've been in a supportive role in a school. I've been in a supportive role at a family support center. Mm-hmm. Been a supportive role to my partner and to my friends who are going through all these scenarios and, and situations. And I want to continue to do that for for people, especially those who who I look up to as heroes. Um, but I also want to break that stigma of heroes can't have feelings because of course they have feelings they're people um and i want to see them as people and i want to help others see them as people people who need help too and matter as well and that's where you're navigating the moral injuries aspect i mean that's a very local therapeutic way of seeing it it's very existential and phenomenological take on what's happening because it's exactly what's happening right we are not we're not necessarily the roles that we're in you know we're, we're not just therapists people too right like it's it can be difficult to navigate both planes of existence at the same time when you're trying to separate the humanity from them it is yeah it's that role aspect if i have to be this or i should be this way um when when you meet someone and you're like oh hi what's your name oh hi i'm chuck and i'm a psychotherapist it's like the first thing we ask what do you do for work yeah that's right. um, like it's that's the easiest way to clear a party us. I'm a therapist. What kind? A head doctor. Oh, okay. Bye. I'm not talking to you today. (laughs) I get that all the time. (laughs) Either that or they really want to talk. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, but it's what that's what's important when a conversation comes up. What's your name? What do you do for work? Uh, And that's just society's way of saying your work is your role, and it's not. You're still a person. You still have hobbies that you like. You still have things you don't like to do. You still have days when you don't want to help people when you just Mm -hmm. want to lay in bed and do whatever you want. And that's fine. (laughs) But I I feel like just the way that we interact with people, we're telling people that your work is what we define you as. And although I'm saying first responders here, because, you know, that's something that I'm interested in working with. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's my whole role is is to help see the person beneath that and to help the person beneath that be able to come out and shine and flourish and, and be happy and whole i think that's very important because in our society i mean it's capitalistic i brought this up twice now uh, <laughs> and i usually bring it up a lot but uh you know we are what we do it's all about productivity and the, what we produce so you know if you're a therapist my identity is therapists you know if you're a teacher your identity is teacher first responder your identity is first responder but that's only one aspect of many and so it can be hard to see the human when we're looking for what we produce yeah. and i think psychotherapy being a therapist of the soul the idea is to reconnect with that soul that the part of you that you're building you know because i feel like our identities are are always being built and created over time based on what we have reason to value and that pursuit the very human flourishing and i think the whole job of a therapist of the soul is to guide people to have better tools so they can pursue those things they have reason to value so they can flourish and that is very specific to the individual in the room no two people mm -hmm. are the same on that yeah well awesome so we're at the end here so before i let you go I'll just get you to remind people of how to find you, the email address, website, and all that good stuff. And then we'll take it from there. Okay, uh, so you guys can find me at www.ksrc.ca. And my specific email on there is michelle at ksrc.ca. Awesome, all right, well, thank you, for having, uh, thank you for having me on the show, hold on. You're welcome, Chuck. Yeah, it's my show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Not for being anymore. on the show. <laughs> That was a great conversation. I look forward to having you back because I feel like we we just skimmed the surface of every single thing we were talking about. There's so much more to dive into, but it was a lot of fun. So thanks for being on. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And all right, everybody, thank you for listening to this episode of Couch to Couch, Making Therapy Make Sense, and we'll see you all next week. Take care. Mm -hmm.